1: for us is great, and that's what we're here to celebrate this morning, that God in his love sent his son to die for those who were sinners. Would you pray with me? Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, our heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, this morning I pray that you would open and illuminate our minds and hearts that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name above every name, Jesus Christ, your son, amen. Have you ever been driving and seen, looked over to your left or maybe your right, and you see the car next to you and you can't see anyone driving it, and it kind of freaks you out for a second, and usually it's one of two things. Usually either there's someone so short and small that they're barely, you know, you've seen those people. Usually it's an older woman or an older man, and they're kind of like this. They could barely see over the steering wheel, and it kind of freaks you out a little bit, right? You're kind of thinking, well, how did they get their license, and why are they driving, and they, there's no way they can actually see, and it's only by the grace of God that they don't kill someone. Or sometimes it's, you know, the person who's kind of so far leaned back in their seat. I don't know if any of you guys drive, but you can't see them because they're so far back, and you're thinking the same thing: How can they actually drive like that? Right? Somehow they manage. But it's it's the same thing. I mean, it's funny things we do with our cars. Have you ever played chicken with your car's fuel gauge? Right? You know, you know what i t- see. You guys laugh because you know what I'm talking about. Uh, especially Isabel, Randy's daughter, knows what I'm talking about. Um, I've been there firsthand. But you're driving along, you're trying to get somewhere, and sure, and it's only when you're trying to get somewhere by a certain time the fuel light comes on. And if you're like me, you're thinking, oh, I got at least like another 50 miles. No problem. Uh, you know, this is fine. We're going to make it. It's not a big deal, um, right? But, I mean, not everyone's like that, but I've done that myself. It's only turned out bad for me one time. Um, But it's the worst feeling when you actually run out of gas because you've had this blinking light on your dash for the last 20 minutes telling you it's going to happen, and yet you're hoping on hope that it won't happen. I mean, it's, it's right in front of your face telling you there is a problem, something's wrong, something's not right with your car, fix it now, and you ignore it. And the worst thing happens. It's the same thing with the check engine light. The check engine light goes on, and half of us, maybe more, we do the same thing. We just kind of pretend like it's not on, and maybe it'll just go away, right? Um, maybe, maybe I'll just ignore it, and hopefully it will fix itself. I'm sure it's nothing uh, important. And then, of course, there you have it. There's smoke pouring out of the engine, and you're in trouble. Um, again, I've had personal experience of this. Driving costs crunchy where I was told by my friends who were driving that you don't need a heat gauge. It's not that important. Um, This was in an old van pulling a trailer. No, it's fine. It doesn't matter if it doesn't work. Well, we got stranded for a week in the middle of nowhere. Um, Problems. But again, something, we're ignoring something that's telling us something is wrong. Just hoping, you know, kind of closing our eyes to it and hoping that our ignorance will turn out for the good. Both of these are times where we we see clearly that something is wrong. Instead of doing something about it, we shut our eyes. We pretend everything's fine. We pretend that nothing's going to happen. We know the safe thing. We know the smart thing, the correct thing to do to make sure the car runs properly, and we ignore it. Well, this morning in 2 Peter, we're going to see a similar situation. The analogy is not perfect, but in our passage this morning, Peter is going to further lay out the consequences of how we live our lives as Christians. He's going to continue to exhort and explain to us what our faith should do to our lives, how it should impact our lives. In fact, this morning, he's going to kind of diagnose our lives, and if we need it, give us the cure now, this morning, we're going to continue in our passage in 2 Peter. If, if you're, this is your first time here, you haven't been in a while, where we just started a series in the book of 2 Peter. We just finished 1 Peter a couple months ago, and now we're continuing in 2 Peter. And so, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 8 and 9 in chapter 1. But before we look at those verses, um, turn just to chapter 1 in general, because we're going to need to see the context of these verses. We need to place these verses in the context of what's going on. Again, when when the New Testament was written, when 2 Peter was written, he didn't write it with verse numbers. He didn't write it with chapters. It's a letter. And so just like any other letter, we need to kind of follow Peter's train of thought as he goes through. It doesn't do us any good to just pluck out a couple of verses and take them in isolation. And like all of the New Testament letters, 2 Peter is logical and straightforward. He's building an argument of what he's trying to get these people to know. So, what do we need to know about 2 Peter to understand verses 8 and 9? Well, first, who Peter is writing to. Now, Peter is writing to fellow Christians. He makes this very clear in verse 1. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, he's writing to Christians. Now, another thing to remember is Peter is writing to a church. It's not a letter to an individual, but to a church, to a group of Christians. Now, that may sound obvious, but we need to remember this. Because our tendency in America, Western individualism, is to think of each one of these letters as individuals speaking to me as an individual Christian. But that's not who Peter's writing to. Now, obviously, the implications for the church have, have impact for the individual. But he's writing to a group. So, the same is true of a sermon. I'm speaking to the church, OVBC, and also to you individually. But we need to remember that because we tend to think of us only as individuals. See, look at in verse five, Peter tells them, we we studied this last week. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he gives this list of qualities. Well, all the verbs in that sentence are plural. And all of the yours there to make your faith, to supplement your faith with virtue is plural. Now, we don't have this in English, so it's hard to distinguish except for people who say y'all, okay? I know it sounds dumb, but it actually clears things up. So to put it in that kind of language, what he's saying is make every effort to supplement y'all's faith. Okay, you got to say it with an accent. He is telling the church as a group, do this together, supplement your collective faith with these things. As a church, make every effort to supplement. You see what I'm saying? So, so we need to read it like that. And we'll see how that kind of impacts our, our interpretation of it. But um, he's not just speaking to individuals, but a group of individuals. We're all in this together, is what it is. We're, we're doing this together. We're not here individually to try to supplement our faith with all these things. But we're here as a group of Christians to together... Supplement our faith with these things. Our church should be marked by these qualities, not just our individual lives. So that's the first thing. The second thing we need to realize is the tone of Second Peter. Um, what is the tone of the letter? Is it condemning like Galatians? You foolish Galatians. No. Is it rebuking like the Corinthians? No. It's not rebuking really either. The overall tone of Second Peter really is encouraging and warning. Those are the two things Peter's trying to do here. Peter's encouraging the Christians. Remember, he says, I'm writing to you guys. I know your faith is established. So he's encouraging the Christians to keep growing in their faith and to watch out because false teachers are coming who are going to pervert the faith that he's taught them. So just like you can easily misread someone's tone in text message, right? Have you ever totally just taken something the wrong way? And you're like, no, that was a joke. Or you know something or you thought something was a joke and it wasn 't a joke, the same way, we can misinterpret the Bible, especially the letters, if we misread the tone of what's going on. You could read something as condemning that 's supposed to be encouraging, or vice versa. You could read something as encouraging, that's supposed to be condemning. Here, Peter is encouraging, and so he 's encouraging his faithful brothers and sisters. It almost kind of has like a cheerleader tone of like, keep going, you're on the right path. Keep going, keep pushing forward. Watch out for these other guys, but keep going. You can see this in verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, these things that we talked about last week. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So he says, I'm reminding you, even though I know that you know, I know that I need to remind you, right? It's what we do every week as we gather. We remind each other. We exhort each other. We encourage each other to keep pursuing the things that we know. know, He says, I know you guys know this stuff, but I... I got to remind you because I don't have much time left. And so the tone is encouraging. The the warning passages come later after chapter two, and we'll see that as we continue in our series here. So Peter's writing to a church full of Christians, and he's writing to encourage them. Now, what has happened so far in this letter? Because again, this is important to understand what's going to take place in verses eight and nine. So in verses three and four, Peter's basically reminded us that God has saved us And that God has given us all the spiritual power we need to live a life that's pleasing to him. He's given us all things, Peter said, pertaining to life and godliness. And so so that's verses 3 and 4. So he leads off by saying that God has done all this amazing stuff. He's given you everything you need. Now, in verse 5 and 7, he then says, okay, so because God has given us all these things, because God has saved us, because he's rescued us out of corruption, because he's made and given us everything now live a life of growth and love a life pursuing the things that god calls us to a life marked by these qualities and this is the qualities he listed he said virtue knowledge self-control steadfastness or endurance godliness brotherly affection and love now obviously brotherly affection could be sisterly affection the whole point is family affection and love so he says, live a life, make every effort, he says, to supplement your faith with these qualities. So where does he go next? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. He's going to have basically a short message for people who are doing this, who, are, who have these qualities and who are increasing in them, seeking to grow. And then he's going to have a short message for the Christians who find themselves lacking these qualities and not seeking to grow. He's going to kind of diagnose the issue and tell you what the problem is. It's really straightforward. It's two verses, and it's right to the point. So the first thing we're going to see this morning in verse 8 is that the Christian who is growing in these qualities, Peter says, has effective faith. The Christian who is growing in these qualities has effective faith. And I'll keep reminding us of the qualities because it's a long list. This is what he says in verse 8. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For if these qualities... Are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, looking at these qualities we talked about last week in verses five and seven, Peter says, Remember, if y'all have these and y'all are growing in them, you'll be effective and fruitful. Okay, just trying to get the group emphasis. Uh, I wish there was a way to say, you know, the other way to say in English is ye, okay, but that, that doesn't work either. Um, so now, so now he puts it in the negative, right? He says, you, if you have these things and you're growing in them, you won't be ineffective or unfruitful, okay? But it's easier just to understand in a positive. You will be effective and will be fruitful. In other words, Peter's telling this church and the individuals there that if they possess these qualities given to them by the grace of God, remember verse three and four, they don't have to worry about being ineffective. They don't have to worry about having an ineffective Uh, disingenuous faith. They don't have to worry about being unfruitful. They don't have to worry about having a ministry that God is not going to use. They don't have to worry about their faith and if it's true faith. He says the evidence is right there in those qualities in which you're growing. So again, Peter's saying to the Christian who makes every effort, as he says in verse five, to grow in these qualities, you will not be useless to God. God will use you. Your search for more knowledge, for a deeper experience of Jesus, will be effective. In other words, he's saying, keep going. If you have these qualities and you're increasing in them, keep pushing forward. God will use you. You won't be ineffective. You're on the right path. God is working mightily among you and will continue to do so. You're focusing on the right things. That's what he's saying. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news is making an impact in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, keep going, keep running with this. Well, the question is, why is this true? It's simple. True faith is active faith. It's basically what Peter's saying here. That's really the message of the entire New Testament. True faith, genuine faith in Christ changes our lives. It changes our hearts because healthy Christians want to be fruitful, right? Would you say someone has a, a healthy faith? If they have no desire to bear fruit and no desire to please God and no desire to do anything, no, that's, that's not, that doesn't actually fit with what the New Testament calls a Christian. And so uh, they want to be fruitful. They want to be like Jesus. They want to possess these qualities and they want to grow in them. That's a sign of living in true faith. And for those of us who have grown up in the church or maybe who have been around for a long time, sometimes we, we kind of like, Give ourselves excuses by lumping Christians into two categories. There's those kind of Christians who, you know, actually seek to, to live according to what Scripture says and, and who pursue knowledge of Christ and who are seeking to be faithful and who are seeking to grow and put these things into practice. And then there's those kind of Christians who, well, yeah, they're a Christian. I mean, I, I really don't know how it affects their life. I'm, I guess I'm not really sure if it does. I mean, it's affected their schedule. Maybe they come on Sunday or, you know, they come on Thursday. Um, but other than that, I mean, I don't really know. Um, and we kind of give excuses for that sometimes. Now, obviously, we're not here to judge anyone's heart, or to judge anyone's life. But Peter's saying that category of just kind of the Sunday Christian, where it has no other impact in their life, they're not growing in any of these things, it's just that category doesn't really exist. This is the same issue that's going on in James chapter 2. The Greek word translated here in 2 Peter as ineffective shows up in James chapter 2 in verse 220. This is what James has to say. He says, But someone but someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And he says this, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe this, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works, and here's that word, is useless, ineffective. And then he continues on and in verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, what James is saying is faith, without any evidence of change in your life, faith that has made no impact in your life other than maybe in your, yes, I believe that, um, is, is fake. James says it's useless. He says it's, it's of no good to anyone, not even you. He says, he kind of said, he laughs. He says, even the demons have that kind of faith. And what good has it done them? They're terrified of God as they should be. He says there's no such thing as genuine faith without life transformation. And I mean, it only makes sense. That's simply logical. Do you really think that someone can experience the actual grace of the living God and be filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and it make no change in them at all. I mean, that just doesn't make any logical sense. It's simple logic. It, it, it doesn't fit. Peter says it. James says it. Paul says it. Even Luther said the same thing. He said this, Martin Luther. He said, It is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. He says, They have to be united because true faith fleshes itself out in works. Now we need to be careful because what no one is saying is that we save ourselves and become righteous before God by our works. That's not what they're saying, but they're saying the true faith, the saving faith in Jesus Christ is one that fleshes itself out in life change. By the power of God, by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what Peter is saying. That's why Peter started with three and four, saying God has given us all these things, he saved us, now make every effort. So if your faith is merely intellectual, if it doesn't change the way you live, if you have no desire to fulfill God's commands, if you could care less about even trying to live according to scripture, you might have a useless and dead faith. And that faith doesn't save because it's not genuine. But, Peter says, take heart. If you have these qualities, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, and they are increasing, he says, you have a genuine living faith in Jesus Christ. He says, take comfort. Your faith is not in vain. Now, notice two things about this. First, I think this is a pretty low standard. I mean, Peter's saying, look, if you have any measure, he doesn't say how much, He doesn't say you need to have total self-control or you need to be perfectly godly. He doesn't say you need to always have brotherly affection in the fullest measure all the time, otherwise you're not saved. That's not what he's talking about. He says if you have these things and they're increasing, so if you have the smallest amount and you're seeking to grow in it, he says you have genuine faith. You have active faith. So he's not here to condemn, remember, he's here to encourage. He says keep going. If you have any measure of these things, keep going. It's evidence of the grace of God at work in your life. He's not talking about some super Christian who just is perfect and running around just embodying all these things and sells everything and goes on with the poor. He's not saying even that you need to grow fast, that they're increasing greatly every day. You wake up and you have more self-control every day. That's not what he's saying. He says, even if you have these things a little, have you increased? Have you increased over the last year? Have you become a little more self-controlled? Have you sought over the last year to be more steadfast, to endure? Have you sought over the last year to be more godly? Take comfort, Peter says. These are just your basic Christian characteristics. I mean, it's as simple as that. Are you seeking to grow and to live more and more like Christ by the grace of God day by day, year by year, decade by decade? He says, keep going. Your faith is not useless. It's not ineffective. It's not unfruitful. Take comfort in God's grace, he says, keep going. And second, notice this. He told them to make every effort. And kind of another way to translate would be literally do everything you can possibly to supplement your faith with, 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 faith with these things. In other words, work hard at it. So it's not, he's not saying that these qualities should just poof, be in your life, otherwise you're a terrible person. What he's saying is you need to work at it. It's going to take work to be more loving. It's going to take effort to be more steadfast. It's going to take work to grow in self-control. It's going to take work to grow in godliness. To strive, it's going to have to strive to show brotherly affection sometimes. It doesn't come naturally, right? If it did, he wouldn't have to tell them to make every effort to do this. It would just be, well, it just will happen. So it's both. And this is incredibly and comforting to me because I may not possess all these qualities. Well, I don't possess all these qualities in full measure naturally. But, and and to take one specifically, I'm not the most self-controlled person you've ever met. I don't have total self-control over everything, but I I have some. I have some, and I think for everyone here, you can say you have some, and I can grow in it. I can work at it by the grace of God, leaning and depending on verses three and four, knowing that God has supplied everything. I can do that. I can seek to grow. And that's what Peter is calling us here to today. And that's a great encouragement. And thirdly, before we move on, the healthy Christian realizes that it's God's grace that we have these qualities and it's by God's grace that we grow in them. That was Peter's point in three and four. And the Christian who is growing, whose faith will be fruitful and effective is the Christian who understands grace-driven effort. You're not trying to earn anything from God. You're not trying to earn your way into heaven. You've already given up on that, knowing that you failed out a long time ago. You're embracing God's gifts and letting letting your life be impacted by that. You're trying to grow, to work on these qualities, knowing that it's only by God's grace that you make progress. It's like Paul says, he says, I strived more than anyone, working with the energy that God worked in me. It's cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our lives, growing as we, as we seek to love each other more deeply. It's because of the gospel that you know who you are and his good graces and that you seek to grow in these qualities. The Puritan John Flavel put it best when he said it this way, grace in the heart is the root of every gracious word in the mouth and of every holy work in the hand. See, grace in action, that's what Peter's calling us to, grace-driven effort. If you know grace... And you'll know the effort. But what if you don't have these qualities? What if you don't possess them? Or or what if you're not growing? What if you're stagnating? You've just become stagnant in your life. What if you're here and you don't simply care? You just don't care. Are you here just to get your card punched? Well, Peter has in verse nine a message for that too. And he's gonna say this. He's gonna make the case that Christians who lack these qualities are spiritually blind and have spiritual amnesia. They're spiritually blind and have spiritual amnesia. Look at verse verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he's saying the Christians who lack these qualities, they've, they've got their eyes in the wrong place. They're blind. They're focusing on the wrong things. They have spiritual amnesia. They've forgotten who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. See, Peter here now is giving a warning. He's saying, look, if you don't possess these qualities, if you have no desire for them. If you couldn't care less about growing in them, there's something majorly wrong. You're either an unhealthy Christian and you need to repent or not a Christian at all and you need to repent. So if this is you this morning, please understand, If, if... It's like looking down at the dashboard of your Christian life. If this is you, Peter's saying the check engine light's going off and the fuel gauge is going off and all the lights are beeping, saying something's wrong. Something's not operating right if you're lacking these qualities. Something is wrong. And just like you don't want to ignore the lights in the car, you don't want to ignore Peter's warning. Something is out of place. But the beautiful thing is, and the good news for you this morning, is that Peter is going to tell you exactly what the problem is. He says, you're blind and you have amnesia. Peter says, you're so nearsighted that you're blind. In other words, your eyes are so focused on what's in front of you that you become blind to everything happening around you. You've taken your eyes off the goal. You've taken your eyes off the prize. Christian, you've taken your eyes off of Christ and his word and put them on the things of this world, so much so that you're blind to the things of God. You've taken your eyes off the grace of God, off of the gospel, you're focusing on all the earthly things right in front of you. You're living your Christian life trying to get to your destination but you're staring at your feet. You're blind to where you're headed. Think about it. It's, it's, like, a, it's, like, it's, like, uh, it's like a traveler setting out on a journey to a distant land but he has the wrong map. Well, that's not going to work. It's like setting out on a road trip to Arizona but having a map of England. That's not going to do you any good. You have, you're looking at the wrong things. You're all messed up and you'll get lost. It's, it's like trying to drive your car, but instead of looking out the window to where, where you're going, you're staring at the steering wheel. That's just asking for an accident. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying if you're lacking these qualities, that's how you're living your Christian life. You're staring at the steering wheel rather than looking at all the things that God has called us to around. We're looking at the earthly things rather than focusing on the grace of God. And just like driving your car like that is a bad idea, living your Christian life like this is a bad idea. You're gonna crash. You're so nearsighted, he says, you're so focused on what's in front of you that you're blind to everything else. That's the picture. And so Peter says, if, if you don't possess these qualities, if, if you don't care about them, if you just wanna show up and you're just kind of, you're living your life blind. You're staring at the steering wheel trying to get somewhere. Your focus is all wrong. You're blind to all the important things. You won't get where you want to go. You're doing this whole thing completely wrong. And notice this. He doesn't say it's a lack of effort. He doesn't say, well, you're just not trying hard enough if you don't possess these qualities. No, he says it's a lack of focus. You're not looking at the right things. It's a lack of seeing clearly. You could be making all the effort in the world to drive great, but if you're staring at the steering wheel, it's not going to help. Peter says you could be making every effort to try to gain and grow in these qualities, but if you're not looking at Christ, it's not going to help. He says whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted. He's blind. And again, this is a warning. The solution is not trying harder, but opening your eyes. See, the language of blindness throughout Scripture is the language of unbelief. So Christian, if you don't possess these qualities... You're focusing on the wrong things. Peter says you're kind of, you're basically just living like an unbeliever. You're calling yourself a Christian and living like an unbeliever. And brothers and sisters, I want to warn you this morning, this is the road to apostasy. Peter's going to come along later in this letter and say these false teachers are trying to lead you in this direction, but don't listen to them. This is the first step of listening to false teachers. But what else does Peter say? Well, let's look again at verse nine. He says this person that doesn't have these qualities has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's got amnesia. He's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten what Jesus did for him. I mean, this is pretty crazy when you think about it. This person has forgotten the basics of the Christian faith. They've forgotten the message of the gospel. They've forgotten what the Christian life is about. It's forgotten what faith in Christ means. I mean, forgiveness of sins is kind of one of the most basic doctrines of Christianity, and this person has forgotten it. He's forgotten the whole point of salvation. They've set out on a journey. They've forgotten where they're going and why they're going there in the first place. The Christian who doesn't possess these qualities is like like an employee who has no clue what's going on. It's like a Walmart greeter showing up at Best Buy to stock shelves. Everything about the picture is wrong. They're at the wrong place of employment. They're doing the wrong job. They've forgotten who they are and why they're supposed to be doing what they're doing. That's the picture. So brothers and sisters, if you don't possess these qualities, Peter says, you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten who you are and why God saved you. You've lost sight of the grace of God. You're staring at your steering wheel. Instead of focusing on the grace of God and pursuing the things he's called you to, you're focusing on yourself and pursuing whatever you feel like. You're living like an unbeliever and wondering why you're not succeeding in growing. He says you're blind. You've forgotten who you are. And by implication, your faith, at least right now, is useless and unfruitful. But if this is you, today there's good news. You see, hidden within Peter's warning and diagnosis is the solution is the cure for the problem. The solution is simple. It's the good news of the gospel. Repent from your unbelief, cry out to God for mercy, and put your eyes on his amazing grace and remember who you are. Remember why God saved you. Quit focusing on all the wrong stuff and by the power of the Holy Spirit, put your eyes back on Christ. Put your eyes on Christ, put your eyes on on his word. And remember, remember. So Christian, today, I want to remind you who you are and why God saved you. I want to remind you what happened at your conversion when you placed your faith in Christ. You see, you've got a problem. You've forgotten. Well, that's why we're here, to remind each other. So sit back and take in the grace of God. Here are some of the things that God's word says happened to you at conversion. These describe you if you sit here today and you are a believer in Christ. Christian, you're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christian, you possess eternal life. John 6.47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Christian, God has personally opened your eyes so that you can see Christ in his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christian, you've been redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you as a guarantee of your salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. to the praise of his glory. Christian, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Christian, you've been adopted into God's family. As one of his own children, you are a co-heir, co-heir with Christ. also may be glorified with him. Christian, the debt of your sin has been canceled and paid for. Colossians 2.13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christian, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1, 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christian, you were crucified with Christ. The old you is dead. Galatians two twenty says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, you're dead to sin. Sin has no power over you. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Christian, God chose you personally and saved you because he loves you just so that he could show you how amazing his grace is for all eternity. Listen to what Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, why has he done this? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he save us? So for all eternity he could display how amazing his grace and kindness is to us. That's why, Christian, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Romans 8 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, you will not be condemned. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you've been saved so that you can bear fruit for God. Romans 7, 4 says, Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit from God. Can't be condemned because we're not under law anymore. We belong to Christ to bear fruit. And finally, Christian, Jesus is praying for you, the scriptures tell us. The Holy Spirit who dwells in you is praying for you and death itself has no power over you. All because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross in our place, all because of his resurrection in power from the dead on the third day. All glory be to God. All glory be to Christ our King who purchased us with his own blood. So Christian, have you forgotten these things? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten the power that you possess in Christ? Remember, remember. Remind yourself daily. Do whatever you have to do to remember. That's the key. And so do you want your faith to be effective and fruitful? Meditate on these truths. Dwell on the grace of God. And then, depending on the grace of God, make every effort in light of it. Dwell on the grace of God and devote yourself to good works and you will bear fruit, God says, because he's dwelling in you and living through you. That's God's agenda. That's what he's doing. And if you're here today and you have a different plan for your life, a different agenda, I pray that you would repent from that. Turn from that and turn to God. Throw yourself on his mercy. If you do this, I assure that you will find Jesus Christ to be a faithful and merciful Savior. So to close, I'd like to read one final portion of Scripture which perfectly sums up the gospel and how we must live in light of it. This perfectly sums up the point of 2 Peter 8 and 9. Titus 2.11 through 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us, so what does the grace of God do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession are zealous for good works so let us as individuals and as a church embody this let us embody these qualities that Peter has shown us let us dwell on the grace of God together and devote ourselves to good works and by God's grace he will use us mightily here in the city of Orange and in the whole world let us pray Heavenly Father you are so good to us Lord, just listening to all these promises that you've given us in your word, Lord, what can we do but turn to and worship? What can we do but praise you with our lives? Father, I pray for us this morning, for every single one of us here, that you would reveal yourself to us more and more. Father, never let our eyes be blind to your glory. Never let our eyes be blind to your grace. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, who's lost sight, who's forgotten who they are. Lord, would you remind them this morning? Would you remind them that they're your child? Would you remind them of all the promises you have for them? Lord, and would you empower them to live a life that's pleasing to you? Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who as as they sat here and listened to these promises, realized that these aren't about them. They're not trusting in you. Well, Father, I pray that you would open their heart Would you open their heart to cry out to you and Lord, would you save them? I pray that they wouldn't leave here today without being able to say, yes, yes, those are my promises too because I am now in Christ. Father, you save us by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you that while we could never make ourselves righteous, Before you, you have made us righteous in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us live out a life. Let us be a people zealous for good works in light of that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you.